0: If you'll join me on page 6 of your bulletin, you'll see Luke 22 there again, and we'll jump right back into that chapter in Luke. And as you might remember from last week or the week before, whichever one you were here for, um, we're entering into the last parts of Luke's gospel to kind of begin the gospel of Luke because it's the last hours of his ministry leading up to Easter, and this is During the Last Supper itself, this text is. And in this text, at this moment, in in this case, Jesus has, we saw last week, just turned the tables on the schemes of Satan. And He has turned the tables even on an ancient and good custom of Israel, the Passover. And He's turned the tables on the wounds of our fallen condition with His good news, with His gospel. And now, as the Son of God holds out, literally holds out his gospel to his disciples in bread and wine, the enemy of God is shown for the destructive intent that he has here. And so you young Christians, as you listen along to this text and hear this familiar passage here, pay attention and see that Jesus is actually warning his disciples about something. And I want you to see if you can notice and tell, do his disciples hear his warning? Do they pay attention? Do they, do they know what he's talking about? Do they hear what he's warning them about? This is Luke 22, beginning in verse 22. Jesus said, "...the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed." And the disciples began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest." And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, Enough. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds. And let us not be dull to your word. Let us rather, understand, and let us see clearly, and let us believe, Father. We pray that you would give us your spirit as your sons and daughters. You promised to do that, and we pray that you would, that you would, as we consider your word here, give us your spirit that we might believe your good news and be made new yet again today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. In his classic 1940s-ish or so work, I think, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, which, again, I've told you before, I I hope that you've read. If you're a Christian, then you've read that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But you should read it. The Screwtape Letters is a very important work that gives you some good insight into things that you don't normally think about, perhaps. And C.S. Lewis wrote some good wisdom to us in the Screwtape Letters. He said this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devils. That is, about the demons, about Satan and his minions, about the demons. He says one of those errors is to disbelieve in their existence. Now, that would be many people today, right? I mean, we live in an enlightened scientific age, and we know better than to believe in things like Satan or demons, those are the sorts of things that just show up on a theater stage like this. They're make-believe. Halloween figures that we imagine, and that's all that they are. So one mistake, he says, would be to disbelieve in their existence. Maybe that's you. The other, he says, is to believe, but to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, that would be some people in our world today, Some who believe that the demons exist, that Satan exists, and yet they're afraid of them or maybe just curious about them, and so they treat them with an unhealthy interest. And so it can lead them astray. And maybe that's you, perhaps. Lewis goes on to say that they themselves, that is the demons, Satan and his crew, are equally pleased by both errors And hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. That is, the materialist is the one who doesn't believe Satan exists. The magician, that is, the one who believes in magic, just thinks that Satan is something to be curious or fearful about. He says, the demons are equally pleased by both errors. And that's a good word. It's really good advice for us to pay attention to. And in the case of the Last Supper here in Luke 22, it's a goodbye with a warning. This is kind of where Jesus goes with his disciples here. He he knows that the devils exist. He knows the demons are real, especially their leader, Satan, who has been a, a constant character throughout Scripture. He doesn't show up on every page explicitly, but his work is very present, and sometimes he does show himself very, very clearly. And on this, the last night of Jesus' earthly ministry, he offers to his disciples a goodbye, a goodbye with a warning. And the warning is this, Satan will try to destroy the church. He will try to destroy the church. Now last week, we we reviewed some of the obvious places where Satan makes himself known, where he shows his hand and maybe even his face in his work in the history of Scripture. We saw that or remembered how Pharaoh in Egypt, who who ordered the the killing of the Israelites' sons. If a child is born and it's a boy, kill it. And there was Satan at work. We saw his work in the enemies of Israel as they traveled towards the Promised Land, refusing them passage. We saw it in Goliath, the Philistine, standing on the battlefield, threatening the Israelites with slavery and with death. We saw it in Haman in Persia, threatening the destruction of the entire race of the Jews. And we saw it in the Judean king Herod, a Jew himself by blood, but not by heart. Herod ordered the destruction of the baby boys of Bethlehem to prevent a rival king from arising. Again and again and again, the devil, Satan, makes his intentions known, and his intention is to destroy all that God loves, to destroy the church. Now, Satan knew very well, as the Apostle John would write in one of his little letters later in Scripture, these words, John wrote, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so there is inevitably a clash that happens when Jesus arrives on the screen of redemptive history. And upon his baptism, Luke tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The clash began right at the beginning there of Jesus' ministry upon his baptism into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, but those temptations failed. And so Luke tells us that when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left Jesus until a more opportune time. And Luke wants us to see that that opportune time has arrived at the Last Supper. In the last hours of Jesus' earthly ministry, that opportunity has arrived, and Satan is active and busy In these last hours, Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. We read last week, Satan entered in, and the conflict is again on. Now, in our modern enlightened age, again, we're scientific thinking people. We know some things. We have some history. We can look back on things and see what's reasonable and what's not. And we think of ourselves as reasonable people, I think. We're tempted more than ever, I think, to one of these two mistakes that are. English professor friend suggested. Either Satan doesn't exist. That's ridiculous. Nobody believes in such things. That's just stuff for theater sets. That's all that it is. Or he does exist and I'm paralyzed with fear or I'm just just complicated with curiosity about this character that I'm so fascinated with. We make one of those two mistakes, and both of them are very dangerous. And so Jesus warns here, Satan will try to destroy the church. How? What will he do? What are we supposed to watch for to know that he's doing that? He says he'll do it by dividing one against another. So let's be honest. On on this one, he actually gets a whole lot of cooperation, doesn't he? From us. We like to cooperate in this effort, don't we? A betrayal has just been revealed here in Luke 22. Jesus has just told his disciples at the table of the Last Supper, he's just told them that the hand of him who is going to betray me is on the table right here in this room. And woe to that man who betrays me. And so the disciples begin to... To, to talk about it. They're, they're dismayed around the table. They're confused. What do you mean the, the one who's going to betray you is right here at this table? One of us, you mean? Surely not. And they begin to question each other, Luke tells us. They begin to question. Who could it be? Is it you? It's not me. Maybe it's you. You across the table over there. I haven't talked to you much. Maybe you're the one. Who, is, wait, who do you think it is? Wait. There's a lot of whispering going on at the table at this point. They're wondering who it's going to be. They have no idea. Even when Jesus excused Judas from the table, the Apostle John in his gospel tells us that Jesus at this moment was letting Judas leave. And the others saw it and they just thought that Judas, being the carrier of the money bag, was just going out to run some errand and he'd be right back. It didn't occur to them that maybe Judas was the one who is going to do this. They just don't know. And so the speculation about who is the worst among them naturally leads to something else. Who's the greatest among us? They're so easily distracted, just like you and me, right? We're so easily misled and run down our rabbit trails, and here they go on a rabbit trail. They were talking about who's the worst among them, and now it's who's the greatest among them, and it's not the first time they've had this conversation. They've had this conversation before. Satan's actions naturally result in division. They always do. And they have from the very first time that he set foot on the scene of biblical history in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. You know the the account there with the man and the woman in the garden. He deceived the woman into eating from the fruit of the tree, the one tree that they've been told to stay away from and or to not eat from, at least. And the man who was with her blamed it when God confronted him on the woman you gave me, he said. So now the man is blaming the woman, but who's he really blaming? He's blaming God. Because when Christians divide one against another... We divide ourselves against God even more, even more deeply. And that's what we're doing. That's what we do. And Satan may be pleased by things like this, but his intervention, we have to admit, his intervention is hardly necessary for it to be accomplished because it begins early in our own hearts. In the church, it begins early. I mean, you begin to see it early on in our lives, what youth group is there in the world that doesn't see this begin to happen? I mean, every 12- and 13-year-old is quite capable of beginning to question the other students in the youth group, right? And this, this begins to happen. This is always kind of a conflict. I can remember it when I was in a youth group in middle school. This sort of thing begins to, to develop. We begin to question the others in our hearts, maybe not with our words, but in our hearts we begin to look around and we think, Well, what good is that boy to me? I'm a better athlete than he is, or I'm a smarter student than he is, or I'm a funnier joke teller than he is, or he kind of annoys me. Or maybe she is just hard for me to talk to, and I just prefer to be with my other friends from school, and I don't really belong with these kids, and I'm greater than they are. We wouldn't say it that way, but that's the way that it begins to develop, isn't it? Or it might not even be such a prideful sort of posture. It might just be under the the guise of false humility. It might be, these kids, they're all friends with each other already, and I've got no place among them. I don't really belong here. They're greater than I am, and I'm less than they are. And a division has taken root. It's really just that simple. It's really just that simple. But, of course, it only begins in middle school and high school. It continues, right? I mean, adults also find themselves, we find ourselves posturing very uneasily in the greater than and less than comparisons as well. C.S. Lewis, in, in that very good book that you should read, The Screwtape Letters, puts it in sort of a lighthearted way. he He's explaining well, screw tape the demon, the senior demon, writing to the junior demon, advising him on how to mislead a human being, is advising his, his students on how to deal with his subject, his human being, in going to church. And he advises him in sizing up his church neighbors. He says, Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes, The patient, that is the human being he's trying to mislead, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. In other words, you want your patient to believe that they are less than I am. Now, we don't use the greater than, less than terminology. We don't use those words, although we might think them in our hearts. Instead, we size each other up by what we have in common with each other, what connections we can make with each other, what what places that we can go together and, and connect. We find union with each other in things like our neighborhoods, our hobbies and our interests, the schools that our kids go to, the restaurants that we prefer to go for dinner our clothing styles, our music tastes, the list goes on and on. There are so many things about which we can connect with each other, but these things are not just points of connection. You have to realize they're also points of disconnection. They're the ways in which you actually eliminate other people from the circles in which you live. I don't connect with them on that thing, therefore, they're not in my circle. We disconnect in that way. But what really unites us in the gospel is that you actually recline at the table with the Son of God. What actually unites us in the gospel is that you gather together around these tables. Here on the stage and up front of the theater, you gather around at these tables, and this is what connects you. This is what draws you together. And... I would suggest that we all ought to maybe consider that if it's not enough to have Jesus in common with one another, then you might not have Jesus at all. Because he's the point of connection. He's the uniting factor for us. So how are you to unite like that? Well, you imitate the one that you follow. What does he say? How does he respond to their... Division here, he says the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, not so with you. Instead, he says, let the leader be the one who serves. In the world, the greater one is the one who receives service. A few years ago, Mary and I went to Chicago during the summer when our kids were away at camp, and we went there for a few days. And we went to a steakhouse in downtown Chicago. It's Michael Jordan's Steakhouse, the great basketball player. He's got his own steakhouse down there. And we went into the steakhouse, and it was a good steakhouse, but the fascinating thing about it was the trophy case that you meet as you walk up the stairs to enter into the restaurant. It's not a case filled with basketball trophies. It's a case filled with steak knives. And each steak knife has a name engraved on the handle. Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Charles Oakley, Patrick Ewing, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Tiger Woods. It's all the great athletes of his day. It's all his buddies. It's all his friends. It's all the great ones who come to be served at Michael Jordan's steakhouse. It's a fascinating thing to see. Jesus says, the community that I'm building is different than that. Why? Why? Because for the gospel to be the gospel, it could only serve. Jesus had nothing to gain from these guys. I mean, if you think about these guys around the table, there was nothing they had to offer him. There was nothing they had with which to serve him. All he had to do was to give. That's all he came to do was to give. And if you've received what Jesus has to give righteousness by faith justification in the presence of the holy god if you've received those things then there's no point in measuring up there's no point in dividing over uncommon ground and lack of worldly connections because the gospel unites and so when that fails satan is persistent he continues to try he tries again And how does he try to destroy the church now? He does it by uncovering dark surprises. And we're not so eager to cooperate this time around. We really don't like this one at all. We want to keep our distance from this one, although he does get God's permission to do it. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Jesus says, Behold, pay attention, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you as wheat. Now you have to wonder when Peter... Simon heard this coming from Jesus, maybe Peter, a good Jew with Scripture in his mind, maybe his mind wandered very quickly back to Job. And he remembered that story of Job and Satan standing before the Lord and the Lord suggesting that Satan consider his servant Job. Have you thought of Job? Oh, I've thought of Job. God, I've seen that man and how you've surrounded him with all kinds of material blessings. Of course he serves you. Just reveal some dark surprises, sift him as wheat a bit, give me a chance to spend some time with Job, and I'll show you what's there. And God gave him permission. Peter had to think back about that and wonder, what, what are you talking about, Jesus? Am I going to face the same sort of thing? Am, am I going to have some, some dark surprises uncovered? But you have to realize it's not just Simon who faces this here. In verse 31, the the you is plural. What Jesus is saying, if a Texan had translated this, is Simon. Simon, Satan has demanded to have y'all. He's demanded to have you all, you guys, all of you. He's demanded to have all of you disciples to sift you all like wheat. What does it mean to sift like wheat? When you sift something, you let the the small stuff fall through in order to reveal the big stuff that's hidden in it. Right? That's what what he means. That's the the metaphor that he's describing here. And in terms of grain, the grain would fall through, and it would leave the chaff and the 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 waste that was left behind. The big stuff, the the garbage, and that's what Satan is after here he wants to uncover the garbage and he figures that if he can uncover the garbage he can destroy the church and that's a pretty bright idea he's on to something isn't he i mean you know it's a good idea you just have to go online and search on google church scandal you get like a half a million hits I mean, it's just so common, isn't it? Satan knows what he's doing. He's no dummy. He knows what he's doing. And so he goes for the root here, the root of the church. He goes for the disciples themselves, especially Peter here. There was some ancient Jewish wisdom that said that when a sieve is shaken, the refuse appears, as do a person's faults when he speaks. That's good wisdom. Peter would have done well to remember that before he spoke back to Jesus here. Oh, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. The sifting had already begun. And some of the big stuff was already showing up, wasn't it? I mean, Peter was already showing his pride. He was showing his self-confidence, even his arrogance. In a sense, what he's saying in this response is, Jesus, look, let me tell you who you're talking to. The rest of these guys around the table, don't worry about them. I am the greatest. That's what he's saying, right? Lord, I'll, I'll go to prison and death with you. The rest of these guys, you know, but look at me. And so the sifting has already begun. So Jesus, of course, gives him a preview of the night yet to come, doesn't he? Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. The sifting will uncover some dark surprises. And, and if you have followed Jesus for any amount of time, then you've felt this. You've known it. You've seen it. You've feared it. And maybe even have nightmares about it because you see your own dark surprises. You recognize through whatever you've been through and the difficulties and trials, the sifting of life that you've been through, you've seen some of the dark stuff that's shown up in your own heart, your own thoughts, your own actions, your own words... And it concerns you. Maybe it should. And the accusations have begun to follow. What kind of a Christian are you to do this? What kind of a disciple are you to have that thought? If somebody found out about this thing, you'd be toast. And you know it. You don't belong in any church. Just give up and just descend down into the darkness of your little surprise and be by yourself because this gospel isn't for you. The accusations can get really nasty, can't they? You've felt them before. I know that you have. I know that you have. You've felt those accusations because Satan prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And he will, without mercy, devour with accusations. But there's really a great irony in this. It's really a fascinating thing to see this because just as God the Father had done with Job, what happens here? Jesus had permitted this to happen. Satan had to stand before God and say, well, you know, if you give me a chance, then... and God said, okay, here's your chance. Satan couldn't do anything unless God permitted it. And in the same way, Satan couldn't sift the disciples unless Jesus permitted it. Satan is on a leash. You have to remember that as a Christian and, and, and remember as you consider how you interact with your thoughts about the evil one. He's on a leash. But Jesus had permitted it <clears throat> because it's good to uncover sin. And you have to recognize the distinction here. When Satan uncovers your dark surprises, he does it with hateful accusations. You're guilty, he says. When Jesus uncovers your dark surprises, he does it with loving grace. You're forgiven, he says. He says to Peter, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, because he knows he will, strengthen your brothers. Help your brothers out. Encourage your brothers because they also are being accused and they're being buried under their dark surprises. Our church has a unique name, doesn't it? New St. Peter's Presbyterian Church. John and I often have to answer for that name, you know, when we go to General Assembly or something like that, or we talk to people about the church we pastor New St. Peter's. It's an odd name. Some, some Protestant Christians don't want to go to a church like that because they, they assume that it's Roman Catholic. Some people, when I tell them that that's the name of the church, they think, well, I don't want to go to church that a pastor is named after himself. <laughs> I didn't do that. I've told many of you, that. I tell every new member class, I didn't name it, I, didn't, I wouldn't even hear when it was named. It's not my fault. But it's a really good name. There are actually two reasons, I think, why this church was named this. <clears throat> One of them is historical. There was a church named St. Peter's Church in Dundee, Scotland, pastored by... Uh, a well-known and a famous and important uh, figure in church history named Robert Murray McShane. And so our church was not that St. Peter's, but it was the new St. Peter's after the same heritage. That's a good thing, a historical reason. But there's also a second reason, a theological reason, why our church is named New St. Peter's. And it's because of this passage in Luke here. The old St. Peter was revealing of his dark surprises. He was self-reliant. He was arrogant. He was proud and overconfident. And he was a denier of Jesus. But the new St. Peter was restored. He was humbled. He was broken. He was shown his dark surprises. And he was forgiven for all that was there because Jesus had prayed for him. And he was restored. And that's the new St. Peter. So for you and me, new St. Peterites, what do you say to Satan when he accuses you? What do you say to him? Do you point to all the things that you've done? Do you point to the fact that you're at New St. Peter's Presbyterian Church, so leave me alone, Satan? Don't do that. You point instead To the one who has restored you. Because Jesus has prayed for his disciples. He's cared for them. And he restores them as they turn back. And so when Satan's sifting of you turns into God's grace to you, he still tries to destroy the church. Again, he's persistent. How does he do it? One more time. By intensifying worldly opposition. The world is only too happy to go along with this one. Verse 35, Jesus reminds his disciples of some ministry experience that they had had in previous months because he wants them to remember with some perspective. He says to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. We didn't lack anything. We we lacked nothing at all. You're right, Jesus. We didn't lack anything when that happened. It was back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples together to go with power and authority to drive out demons and cure diseases and preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. And they had gone out and they had done those things, but his instruction to them in doing that was, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt, no extra shoes, just Go as you are, and the people will receive you. They'll take care of you. They'll welcome you into their homes. And if they don't, then just move on. And some months after that even, Jesus sent out more disciples, 72 of them, in pairs. And he gave them the same instructions. Carry no money, no sack, no sandals. The people will provide for you. But now, he says, things are different. He says, now take your money, take your bag, Even get a sword. Sell the shirt off your back to get a sword if you don't have one, he says. Now, he's exaggerating, and the disciples surely should have recognized this because these guys didn't have a wardrobe of shirts in their closet at home like you and I do. They had one shirt. Maybe two if they had a place to put the second one. But if they gave away one shirt and sold it to buy a sword, they'd be walking around without a shirt on, with no cloak, and they wouldn't do that. He's exaggerating to them, and they surely should have recognized that, but they respond with great zeal, don't they? Look, Lord, we have two swords already, and the suggestion is we can go and get more. And what does Jesus say to them? Enough. It's a very curt reply. You have to realize he's not saying, that's good, two is enough, that'll do for us. He's not saying that. He's saying, guys, stop it. That's enough of that foolishness. That's just stupid. You're not listening to me. Pay attention. I'm not talking about real swords, he says. What's Jesus saying to them? He says, I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he goes to quote from Isaiah 53, a passage they would have known very well. He was numbered with the transgressors. Now, Isaiah describes God's servant with a capital S. God's servant, the man yet to come, as Isaiah prophesied, who would suffer, who would bear the burden of our guilt, who would endure the shame of our own sin, who would be stricken and smitten and afflicted, who would have nothing appealing about him to the world who saw him. They would not be drawn to him. There will be nothing about him that would interest them. And so Jesus says, The world will see me, guys, in a matter of hours. They will see me as a common criminal. In fact, I'll be crucified between two of them. And you will be no better in the eyes of the world than that. In other words, Satan is even now intensifying the world's opposition to the kingdom of God. Guys, when I'm gone you're going to go out and preach the kingdom and it's not going to be so easy. There's going to be intense opposition to it because Satan is stepping up his game and you will need every supply at your disposal. But I'm not talking about real swords. I'm talking about the work of the Spirit who will come upon you and enable you to do all that you're called to do. The world will oppose you. Because a gospel truth is that in the world's eyes, the gospel and the one who preaches it is as unappealing as a common criminal. I mean, you think about this world and, and the, the spiritual things that, that do sell, figuratively speaking, or even literally speaking, that do sell. It's, it's, there, there are many man-made versions of Jesus. People, people cast Jesus in all kinds of ways that are more palatable to the world to buy. But the resurrected Son of God does not sell well because Satan is intent on destroying the church. He will try to destroy the church with all kinds of worldly opposition. So don't be deceived by his tactics. He knows what he faces. In fact, C.S. Lewis describes it. Screw tape that that senior demon writing to his junior demon, whom he's instructing, explains. He says, One of our greatest allies at present is the church itself. Now, remember, this is a demon writing to another demon on how to help him deceive. He says, One of the greatest allies we have is the church itself. But then this wise senior demon clarifies. He says, Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, he says, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But, fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. We don't see the church in the way that God sees the church. And we don't even see the church in the way that the demons see it. They see it with more clarity than we do. C.S. Lewis is not the Bible, but I think he's accurate. Satan knew exactly what he was doing, and that's why he was so intent for millennia and continues to be in his efforts to destroy the church because he recognizes what it is, and he also recognizes that we don't see it. And so we come to the communion table together, as we so often do, in order to see that church. We gather around these tables together in order to acknowledge that God has united us to Him, and therefore He's united us to each other, for better and for worse. Not or. For better and for worse, he's united us to one another. Satan hates what Jesus loves. He divides what Jesus unites. He accuses where Jesus forgives. And he opposes where Jesus moves and works. But Jesus has prayed for you. So may your faith not fail. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that as we come to these tables, that you would enable us to believe, that you would meet us here, and cause us to recognize how you've called us, not just to belong to you, but to belong to one another, and to find joy in the body of Christ as we love and serve one another, even as you have loved and served us. And We pray, Father, that as we do these things, that you would be pleased, that you would be honored, and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.